Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Art Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, Matt. And se- <laughs> he didn't say hi to you, Ed. <laughs> and senior editor Matt Kenny. I'm keeping that. Hey, Mike. Uh, anyhow, as I always say at the beginning of every podcast, spread the word about this show to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page. Maybe leave a five-star comment and a uh, five-star rating and a nice comment. Um, we always like reading all those comments, be they positive or negative. More on that at the end of the show today. Um, but anyhow, let's move on to uh, happenings here at Fine Woodworking Magazine. So there's a big set build happening in the workshop. I don't know if anybody really cares. But Probably not, but go ahead and tell well, us about it. Well, if you watch a lot of our woodworking <laughs> videos, you'll care. So I decided to, actually, I didn't decide. It was put to me to design a set. So we're building a big sort of timber frame, fake fake timber frame looking set. So we got all these three walls drywalled, and we're putting up fake posts and beams and 45s and running power to it and hanging lights off of gantry cranes and building huge jibs and no i mean it's not that in depth how did you go from web production to drywall how did this task fall well, i didn't do the drywall shoulders? i had somebody else do it but but uh no you know how this started because we're all doing if anybody that listens uh, that reads fun woodworking also um reads fine home building they might know that there's a video series called there's a better way uh chuck miller who was uh, one of the former um special issues editors over there i think that was his title um, he was just a long-time editor. Yeah, yeah. forever since the, the Stone Age. Um, Chuck appears in these There's a Better Way videos, and now we're going to be doing our own There's a Better Way videos, for which we've decided we need this whole fancy pants new set. And uh, So there's going to be a whole new look to find woodworking videos very soon. Hmm. We're going to use it for uh, videos, other videos, right, and some maybe some photo shoots. I'm hoping or... we'll use it for photo shoots. That depends upon Mike, the art director here. Well, you know, usually we travel out to author shops to shoot everything. On occasion, authors come into the shop where it makes more sense, and we're always stumbling around our our machine room and bench room. Um, It's not the easiest place to photograph, so I think we're going to try and get some extra use and set up a nice little shop sort of space. Shop within a shop. Shop within a shop. so authors can come in when they have to and shoot here. But um, I just think it'd, be, it'd also be nice. I was thinking more like a, for like the Q and A section of the magazine and things like that. Oh, sure. Where we always more or less shoot here at, yeah. the, at the office. Right on. Yeah. Cool. And, and the other little bit of uh, housekeeping I had to take care of was just something that was a little funny. Um, so I'm working on getting um, a furniture maker from Canada to come down to Newtown to our office here. Uh, to record an upcoming video workshop, and it came up that we would probably need to get a visa since he's coming here to be paid by us and all this sort of thing. So I've been trying to contact various people at the U.S. consulate in Ottawa to find out, like, what kind of visa does this guy need? And uh, which, by the way, try getting a live human being at any U.S. federal government office anywhere in the world. It's impossible. Especially the last three days, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. No, but this happened before the last three days. Um, so anyhow, so I had written the Ottawa consulate, the U.S. consulate in Ottawa, asking for information. The subject line to my email is visa information for Canadian business travelers to U.S. And um, I wrote them inquiring as to the visa requirements, and I get this response. Hello. Your organization will have to contact USCIS to determine if the J-1 category is still applicable. Thank you. And then immediately underneath, thank you, in parentheses, no name, mind you, in parentheses it says, 
I read your magazine. <laughs> and then directly under that, in red type, it says, this email is unclassified, <laughs> which led me to wonder, I want to get a classified email, and I right. wanted to write this guy back and ask him for a classified but email. But then you couldn't share this information with all of us. No, much like Bill Peck, I, I, our shop manager and rocket scientist, I, right. I wouldn't be able to divulge can't tell it. us about his past. No, but I'll find out. Right. I'm, I'm surveilling Bill. <laughs> um, anyhow, I thought that was kind of cool, though, that even these you know shadow government workers in far-off consulates are reading our magazine. Yeah. Is that a compliment or a threat? Is he saying that... <laughs> I know who you are. <laughs> I know who you are. If this guy shows up in your magazine, I'll know. That's right. Yeah, he true. is. I don't know. True. You know, the interesting thing is whenever I go to Canada uh, to do photography, the only thing Canadian Customs cares about is who's paying me. That's all they care about. Really? Yeah. It's hmm. like, are you being paid by a U.S. company or a Canadian company? Oh, because then you would need a visa to travel yeah. there. If and you I were, say it's yeah. an American company that's paying me. They're like, happy, yeah. have a happy day. That's hmm. what I'm trying to prevent when this guy comes here. <laughs> oh, so if a Canadian company were hiring you to come into the country to do something, that's a big deal. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. 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 You need the appropriate visa. Anyhow. Yes. Yeah, we're <laughs> way off topic. Anyhow, yes. Let's steer out of the weeds here uh, and answer our first question for the day, which comes from Chris. And Chris writes, I am recycling an old bowling alley lane into a short table. The wood, maple, I believe, has had some water damage, and after several applications of bleach and using a chisel to dig out the bad wood, I now have a beautiful but wavy surface. I've separated it into several pieces about eight inches across. They stretch about five feet lengthwise. I would normally just throw it into the planer, but since the underside of the lane has a very inconsistent height, I'm afraid doing so will make the sides crooked. Is there a way to support the underside of the board while keeping the top straight across? I have a small 13-inch benchtop planer, so it should handle the boards, but I've never put something so heavy through the planer. Should I be worried about that? Lastly, since bowling lanes normally have a thick finish on them, would you approve of finishing it with a marine varnish and keeping it on a covered porch in sunny California? Sunny Califas. So. Uh, that's a lot of questions. That's a lot of questions. So how does, he, how does he plane a flat on this thing? Well... You know, back in the day, it seems like I know a few guys who thought it was a good idea to get a piece of bowling alley floor and turn it into a workbench. I guess bowling alleys must have been going out of favor 10 or 15 years ago because it seems like they were a dime a dozen to get. And they're a beast. They're heavy. They're thick. Typically, I don't even think the uh, the individual laminations are glued together. Typically, they have those long sort of spiral. Ring sh oh, spiral shank nails. You know, nails, big things sort of holding everything together. So it holds them together too loose to actually be functional as a single panel, but then they're really hard to get out when you try to get them out. Anyway, that's kind of beside the point. I think um, it sounds like you don't have a jointer wide enough to dress one face and then run it through the planer. So if that's the case, if this top side, even if it's got some dings and gouges and such from cleanup, if it's overall basically flat, why don't you try just flipping the thing upside down and dressing the bottom uh, nice and flat and parallel to the top, and then you can flip it, run it bottom side down, and dress the top. Right, and then run it the yeah. edges on the jointer. And I guess one thing I'd, I'd be cautious about is the grain direction, because I would think that when they made the bowling alley, they probably weren't really right. too careful about grain direction. Okay. Uh, so maybe if you do what Mike says, flip it over, run the bottom through the planer, and who cares if it gets some tear out. Right. Then try to find a local cabinet shop that'll let you run it through Drum a sander. sander. Yeah. Oh, big and wide, sand, wide yeah, belt sander. Yeah, big wide belt sander. Yeah. And then you'll get a flat top that's smooth, yeah. and you won't have any tear out. 
Yeah. What about right. the uh, his question regarding like is this thing going to destroy his thirteen inch planer? Not unless he hits one of those shank nails. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think in terms of the the weight of the panel. Um, he may want to make sure the planer is bolted down to his bench top or something like yeah. that to keep it yep. from, from tipping. The other thing you can do if for some reason the bottom is so gnarly you don't want to run it across your planer is you can basically put shims underneath the bottom, put it on your bench top, put shims underneath to keep it nice and stable. Then you can slap on some boards on the sides of the piece to act as little runners, which will contact the yes. bottom of the planer and let you dress the top without having to dress the bottom. Yep. There you go. Yep. You could... Uh, take those runners and like what screw them into the sure yeah right. yeah and then it'll that'll actually be your flat bottom yeah he's also probably going to want to support um the you know the as it's going in and then consequently coming out he's going to probably have to put little riser blocks like a foot or two in front of the infeed and outfeed tables to the planer because you have to support that back end of the board for example yeah, so you, going in. you can just or you just hold it. it yeah yeah by the time it gets that's a heavy a foot or two out, yeah. he should be able to let go of the infeed side and walk around to the outfeed side, mm -hmm. you know, and hold it. it, it like Mike said, if you bolt it down, you shouldn't have any – you should be able to do that, walk around from the infeed to the outfeed without it, you know, tipping over or anything. All right. Then, then you have one oh, – should he put it outside in California, A? Uh, what, no, he was asking um, – would you approve of finishing it with a marine varnish and keeping it on a covered porch in sunny California? I do not approve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 fine. Uh, to use a marine varnish for an outside uh, use like that is perfect. The uh, main difference between a marine varnish and a regular varnish for indoor furniture is that it's um, it's softer. It, it moves so. Um, the marine varnish is going to move along with the wood movement uh, to resist cracking uh, in the finish. So it's a good finish for something like that. Is it true that most marine varnishes are approximately 2% spinach? Shut up, scumbag! <laughs> Sorry, that's my marine. No, Popeye, <laughs> come yeah, on. Yeah, you I guys know, are so slow. Popeye's not a marine. He's a sailor. <laughs> He's a sailor, dude. But, yeah, it's a marine <laughs> setting, though, you know. All right, all right, all right. All right. Next question comes from Brandon, who wrote, I often get frustrated when looking for an off-the-shelf paste wax that doesn't contain some sort of neurotoxin as the solvent. I resolved the issue by making my own wax using citrus oil as the solvent, and it's worked wonderfully. It's time to make another batch. And instead of rustling up all the ingredients again, I figured your brains were there for the picking. I want to make furniture, not wax. This being a daily use material, I'd like it to be friendly. There's no need for toxic chemicals when safe options seem to be available. Um, so I'll let you guys chime in wherever you want. I, I did, uh, get a hold of Peter Gedry's mm -hmm. and, uh, our resident finishing expert. And Peter has never, um, made any waxes using citrus, um, oils as the solvent. So he couldn't really comment there. He didn't want to steer us in the wrong direction. But one of the things he said was, look, if the guy is afraid of, you know, some of the waxes like, uh, Brie wax that have toluene in them, um, why not just use one of the many other waxes on the market that are uh have mineral spirits as the solvent because mineral spirits aren't really that dangerous i mean you should wear plastic gloves i suppose but it's you know it's pretty safe stuff um and uh what else um oh and also i did some digging online and i also found out that again i'm still talking about brie wax uh they make a non-toluene uh version of their wax as well hmm. toluene free so, and then it got me to thinking like, hey, I'm going to look up toluene on Wikipedia 
Let's see what all the hubbub is about this stuff. And it says, <laughs> inhalation of toluene is low to moderate, in low to moderate levels can cause tiredness, confusion, weakness, drunken type actions, memory loss, nausea, loss of appetite and hearing, and color vision loss. It's just like the medication I take. <laughs> <laughs> the symptoms usually disappear when exposure is stopped. Inhaling high levels of toluene in a short time may cause lightheadedness, nausea, or sleepiness. Um, it may also cause unconsciousness and even death. Um, it says that it is often abused as an inhalant, like uh, likely on account of the euphoric and disassociative effects these actions produce. Not recommended by fine woodworking. Um, but it is not known to be a carcinogen, just FYI. Hmm. But it'll still mess you up pretty good. Yeah. You know, not, that, not that this is you know, incredibly... Huffing, fascinating material. But. Huffing paste wax. Yeah, that you, those would be pretty desperate days. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like Peter has it pretty well covered. Yeah, I mean, mineral spirit yeah, solvent. I, I took a look online real quick, and for instance, uh, Johnson Paste Wax, um, they have their little materials data sheet online, <clears throat> and basically it says they use uh, naphtha, along with three other waxes, and that's it. So um, if you're looking for something uh, where just mineral spirits or naphthens involved, I think it's pretty easy to find. You're right, the brie wax with the toluene is, is nasty stuff uh, to breathe in. Ed? <laughs> Ed, stop um, coughing. But if you want to even eliminate mineral spirits, um, back in my college days, we would do a custom wax mix where we would— I thought he was going somewhere totally different with that. <laughs> <I know. laughs> we would uh, shred beeswax into linseed oil and heat it over a double boiler and create sort of a wax finish. And actually, Tried and True, who makes boiled linseed oil finishes— um, has a beeswax linseed oil finish, which works well and pretty much does the same thing. And their boiled linseed oil, by the way, is true boiled linseed oil where it's it's actually a food-safe finish. You could actually drink this stuff if you wanted to. So I think that's about as food-safe as you're going to get. Um, you could also um, uh, dissolve beeswax into mineral oil, which is a great finish for cutting boards. But because the mineral oil is never going to dry on you, I'm not sure you want to put that stuff on your furniture. So back in the day, you were mixing up BLO while listening to BTO? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, for those interested, Mike did attend college in approximately the mid-19th century. At the College of the Redwoods, which was actually right. they met in a redwood tree. Okay, folks, well, I say it's time to head into our first segment of the day, and that's going to be Smooth Moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we fess up to our most recent boneheaded moves in the shop. Each of us has a smooth move today, and I say we start with Mike. It was a mystery smooth move. He refused to divulge to us ahead of this podcast recording. I'm eager. This falls under the category of not paying attention to your own advice. So <clears throat> uh, basically, um, I haven't been happy with my table saw for a while. I have nice sharp blades. I even had a brand new dado set, resharpened. Um, still getting a little bit of tear out, put a fresh uh, little floor on my crosscut sled and all that kind of stuff. And I was still getting little fuzzies. And I just thought maybe there's some run out in my arbor. You know, who knows what's going on. Um, but uh, recently I was pulling a table saw blade off my table saw and I was going to clean it, which I want to do on occasion. And I noticed that there was a greater pitch buildup on one side of the saw teeth than the other side. Hmm, a mystery. Yes, indeed. So I thought, why? The butler did it. You know, why could that be? What is this from? And then I put two and two together, and I thought, well, 
I'm getting more wear or more pitch buildup on one side than the other. I'm also getting a poor cut. I said, darn it. I bet my miter slots are not parallel to, the to my saw blade. And all this time I'm getting bad cuts because with my miter slots not parallel to the saw blade, I'm in essence running my stock in an angle across the blade. Yes. So I cleaned the pitch off uh, the blades. And by the way, I went ahead and looked at my other saw blades I had. Sure enough, I had pitch building up more on one side than the other. I got out my stair at combo square, slid it along my miter slot. Sure enough, I was about a 64th off front to back. I never would have thought of that, man. My stars, Michael. Good God, man. And and again, it's one of those things we always say, you know, the first thing you do on table saw tune-up is adjust the tops of the miter slots are parallel to the blade. Because if you don't start there, nothing else you do, rips, cross cuts, anything, um, is going to come off the way you want it to. So right. sure enough, I straightened that sucker out, took a cut, and those blades that were previously leaving that little tear out on the bottom edge, perfect. Yeah. So I, I would like to point out just for the sake of accuracy in our in our re- listeners that f- 2 plus 2 actually equals 4 and not all this stuff that Mike was talking about. So... Okie dokie. <laughs> so sorry. Thanks, Matt. Matt, why don't you take it away? Number two smooth move for the week. Yeah, I we can file mine under uh, I'm stupid and I keep making the same mistakes uh, because... That's the definition of insanity. <laughs> yes. This is not the first time I've done this, and this is actually not the first time I've used it as a smooth move on the podcast. What's more shameful about this is the context in which I did it. But um, I recently was making a cabinet with doors, and it has uh, L-shaped knife hinges. And with knife hinges of any variety, but particularly L-shaped knife hinges, which means you have inset doors, you absolutely must uh, mortise for the hinges before you glue the cabinet together. Sure. Mortise your case. Mortise your you case. Right. Yep, yep, yep. So I, yeah, not the, not the doors, but um, so I was involved with a photo shoot uh, for an article upcoming in uh, uh, an, an issue of the magazine. Uh, and part of that article, we were actually, there's a companion article to it about mortising uh, or installing knife hinges on bow front cabinets or bow front pieces of furniture. So mm-hmm. I'm there for the explicit purpose to photograph how to install knife hinges correctly. <laughs> and how to do so nice. in the correct manner. And how to do right. So on the first day of the photo shoot, when we're making the cabinet for that, for that article about making the cabinet, I glue up the cabinet without mortising for the hinges. And so, you know, like 1130 that night, I'm lying in bed trying to go to sleep and I realized the mistake I had made. <laughs> and so over the weekend, I had to make a completely new case so that we could go back and shoot oh, the photos. Yeah. You couldn't Photoshop that? No. <laughs> so that's uh, – and then the sad thing is it's not the first time I've done that. Nice. Wow. I know. Well, I have you ever – this is uh, something – that I I still can't figure out how it's humanly possible that I did this. Matt, you already know this. I told you yesterday, but uh, have you ever measured something multiple times, like three times to make sure, yep, this is the cut I have to make. Yep, this is perfect. Awesome. Make the cut, and it's wrong. And Mm. wonder, like, how is this possible? Yeah. You know? So I'm cutting the... I I told you I'm making the fake post and beam joinery for that set. And the beams come into the posts... Um, with this funky little scarf joint, and uh, it's got an angle and this, that, and the other thing. And I, 
um, the that joinery has to start at a certain uh, distance above this window opening that we have in the set, whatever. So I measured three times where the beginning of the joint had to be. Now you said you didn't measure, but you actually, actually were marking I held it up. directly yes, from that's right. the... I, yeah. I was marking directly from reality, but I like I held the post up against the window opening, and I said, yep, I want to come up you know, three inches from here, and this is where I want to start. And I also took a tape measure, and I measured that distance, and then I measured on the post. I made sure like three different times in three different ways that this is the correct position for this joinery. Wrong. Like off by like three inches. And yeah. I cannot figure out. It's impossible. It's like, how the hell did this happen? I think the my favorite thing about this mistake is that it's not just one board you did it wrong on, but you cut it wrong on all of them, right? Four posts. Four yeah. posts, yeah. Well, actually, the saying is measure twice. Yeah, and I measured once. thrice. See, you went three times. I think it needs to be even increments. Once is not good. Obviously, three times is not good. That's Perhaps twice. four is good, but maybe if you stopped at two. two. Right on. Give that a try. I think that you had your board... It was supposed to be standing on the floor. Yeah. And you had it standing on something else. Hmm. No, I swear. I didn't. I don't yeah. know. It's just really ticking me off because I was very careful and I... Whatever. So if any of you see a, a, <laughs> a piece scabbed onto the bottoms of our posts <laughs> in any future videos, you'll know why. Um, look closely. Uh, anyhow, so let's move on to our next question, which comes from Mike, not this Mike. Uh, and Mike writes, I'm planning on making some raised panel doors out of alder. I have a variable speed, two and a quarter horsepower Freud router mounted in a table. I've made raised panels before with this setup, sneaking up on the final depth to get a good cut and not overload my router. However, this time, I want to get a panel bit with a back cutter. How can I get the final cut with this type of bit? Seems that the bit would have to start out at the final depth. Do I gradually move the fence in until I get to the final cut, or do I make the front and back cut in two separate operations? I've seen bits where they're mounted together and where they're separate. Can the ones that come together be used separately? Is there a better way to do this? So first of all, before you guys answer this guy's question, um, I think it, it would make sense to describe what he means when he says, this time I want to get a panel bit with a back cutter. Sure. Who's going to describe Start that? Start there. Well, uh, in a frame and panel, you have a frame and a panel. In the panel. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Slow down again. Slow whoa, down. whoa, 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 Mike. Whoa, <laughs> Professor. You just blew my mind. <laughs> the panel is typically either rabbited or beveled on one face. Now, on a raised panel, typically the, the raised portion of this panel is on the outside. It's a decorative feature. It also allows you to have thicker stock um, for a panel that then you bevel down to fit the groove. Now, in commercial purposes, um, they try to save some time because as a furniture maker and you're doing this and you're beveling one face um, to a specific dimension in order to uh, fit the groove. But the other thing you're controlling is the fillet, that little step on the front. So um, so this means that your thickness of the panel has to be just right so that your fillet is exactly the right depth while fitting the groove exactly. Mm. So you're, you're hitting a lot of variables at once. Uh, in commercial production factories, they don't have time for any of this. So they said, wait a minute, let's just put the exact profile we want on the front of the panel. It can be thick. Uh, as long as it's over a certain thickness, we can go ahead and rabbit the back of the panel to fit the groove. So you're sort of separating those things into two distinct processes. You're, you're routing the front to get the fillet depth, and then you're routing the back to get the panel uh, thickness to fit the groove. Yeah, and the, and the two cutters, after they've done their job, they leave a tongue 
that's the right size to fit into the groove. Exactly. Yeah. So you can do that, like you said, in two steps, um, bevel the front, grab at the back, or get a special bit which has the profile cutter for the front and a straight section of bit to cut that tongue mm-hmm. or rabbit on the back. That way you can, you know, say your stock is five-eighths or three-quarters. It doesn't really matter because it's going to fit. Yeah, it ends up with a, a tongue to fit into the groove. Exactly. The right size. Okay. So how does he sneak up onto that final? Well, I think he, he knows the answer or he gave us the answer that you want to uh, move your fence back. So first set your fence so you're barely using any of the cutter head's width or diameter, I guess would be the way to say it. Right. And Radius. What? No, so you're barely using any of its radius. Okay. You're only using the radius from the center to the outside of the circle. Hmm. Touche. Yes. Thank you, Ed. That's right. Science. (laughs) All right. Uh, Screw you. I felt really good about that. Um, So you would just do a little bit, go all the way around all four sides of the panel, move the fence back so so you're making use of more of the cutter. And continue to do that, I guess, until you're probably there's going to be a bearing on it, I would think. That's my guess. Yeah. yeah. And so then until you get back to where the edge of the panel is on the bearing and yeah. you've cut the full profile on the front and the full rabbit on the back. That's, All right. what, that's yeah. what I would do. Simple enough. Well, let's move on to the next question from Jens. And Jens wrote, I'm currently in the process of upgrading my dad's old Delta bandsaw, Rockwell Delta era. I've upgraded to new thrust bearings and ceramic cool blocks. I'm thinking about upgrading the one-third horsepower motor to a three-horsepower Baldor that I have from an old table saw. Since I'm upgrading the motor, I was also thinking about putting the six-inch riser block on it. No point in a three-horsepower bandsaw with max resaw of six inches, right? Have you guys had any experience Unless putting... you're resawing steel. <laughs> have you guys had any experience putting riser blocks on? Do I need to spend the 130 bucks for the Delta upgrade kit, or could I use the $70 Grizzly riser block? Now, um, upgrading from the one-third horsepower motor to a three-horsepower raised a red flag with me, so I sent an email to Raleigh Johnson. And uh, Raleigh's kind of our resident uh, power tool junkie nut. In the magazine, he's always known as Roland Johnson. Roland. Yes. Um, much like the keyboards. Uh, so anyhow, Raleigh replied, and this is verbatim his response, Three horsepower is too much power for the bandsaw. Now, by the way, Matt responded when I first read this response. Yes. He said, wait a minute. There's no such thing as too much horsepower for Raleigh. Yeah, that's right. Um, but anyhow, he says it's too much horsepower for the bandsaw. At idle or under light use, the horsepower wouldn't be a problem. But the urge to push the saw past its capacity could cause trouble. The bearings, axles, and wheels were not designed for the loads three horsepower can create and maintain. Best bet, sell the motor to someone who can use the power, then buy a good one-and-a-half horsepower motor, a pair of machined pulleys, and a segmented belt. Plenty of smooth power for a 14-inch saw. Buy the Delta riser kit. It includes the correct extended upper guide bearing post and extended blade guard. Cheers, Raleigh. There you go. Now, I happen to have a Rockwell-era Delta bandsaw that I got from... Matt Kenny that's finally. Right. Yeah, which I had bought from Mike Pekovich. Wow. And that's the uh, deluxe one and a half horse oh, version. Yeah. So you have the bigger motor in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So if you want a one and a half horsepower motor, you can come over to my house. Now, what'd you yeah. do? Do you put your riser block back on there? I asked Matt if he had it, but he had gotten rid of it already. I sold it. Yeah, he sold that baby. That's right. 
Yeah, no riser block. Making as much money as I possibly can. But I got a sweet, uh, I got a sweet uh, fence off a mat. You did. I I put a nice fence on it for you. Right. I, you know, one and a half horsepower seems fine. I, you could even go with one if you keep a sharp blade on there. it, It takes surprisingly a little amount of horsepower to get through stuff. I mean, unless you're going to be resawing Cocobolo and Cocobolo. other, other super-hard tropicals. Yeah, but, I mean, to your point, like a dull blade is going to flex before it bogs down the motor. Yeah. So you're going to run into problems with a dull blade um, or too fast of a freeze rate much sooner than that motor is going to start to bog down. So I'd say... You know, with a six-inch resawing capacity, three-quarter horse is fine. You're right. If you add the riser block and you're resawing some heavier stuff, that uh, horse and a half is probably a good idea. But um, yes, Matt. Now about the riser block. Yes. Unless you're done, are you done? Uh, I Uh-oh. think I was about to segue into the point that you're probably going to make much more eloquently than tails. me. So. Well, I don't know. If I'm going to be eloquent. I might be. A, wait a minute. Wait a, a minute. Bit I'm more snarky. I'm giving you the pins versus tails audio intro right now. Here it goes. No, 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 no. no. I was just going to say, I would think carefully about adding a riser block, because, but you know, look, if you resaw something that's six inches wide, and you're going to book match it, or slip match it, you end up with a panel or that's twelve inches wide. Now that's pretty wide. So the question is, how often do you need to resaw something to end up with a panel that's more than 12 inches wide? What if you're not book matching or slip matching? Well, what are you doing with it? Well, what if I just want to resaw one wide board for my door panel? (laughs) (laughs) What if I have a perfectly centered cathedral? Well, you know, yeah, there are times I resaw most of my lumber when I'm making stuff. Uh, And 12 inches is nice, but you should really just think about how often you're going to do it. Because, you know, if you're not really going to be resawing wood that's more than six inches wide very often, then don't worry about the riser block. I got by fine with a 12, with a 14-inch with six-inch resaw capacity. Fine, Matt Kenny. Yeah. Mort Zuckerman, you, riser block? <laughs> uh, no? The, Mike Bekovic. The, the riser block, um, it does uh, extend the capacity that you can resaw, and I think that is a good thing. I think there are some limits to how good of a good thing that is. Um, you know, especially for wider resaws, you do start to run into limits of the power of the motor. Also, as I think we've talked about in the past, I think um, there's a little bit more flex in the long guide bar that comes from adding a, a bigger riser block that, that might impact the ability of the saw to cut straight and track straight. That said, six can be kind of tough, especially let's say you have an eight-inch joiner and you're dealing with stock seven, eight inches wide and you're, say you're resawing something down, and it's like, Ugh. So I think that the riser block is good maybe to get an extra couple inches on there. I wouldn't, you know, treat it like a big 12-inch resaw uh, machine where I'm really constantly throwing a lot of lumber through there. But mm-hmm. I think the added capacity is a good thing. Just beware that um, you could run into performance issues um, from putting the riser block on there. But, you know, give it a try. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with putting it on there. I would say that, you know, in my new bandsaw, which has 12 inches of resaw capacity, I've yet to resaw anything 12 inches wide. Hmm. But, you know, that's just me. Well, let's head into our next segment of the day, and that's going to be an audio stumper. And here is the deal. I'm going to play a short audio excerpt from a woodworking-related interview. It's not a sound effect this time. 
Your job is to identify who the speaker is. If you know the answer, send it in to shoptalk at taunton.com. T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. Are they supposed to identify the person simply by the voice or is this yeah. person speaking well, about topics that are... Both. both. I mean, you, you might know the voice, but more likely, um, you're going to identify it by uh, the, the topic that uh, he, she is speaking about. Um, so that's, that's all I'm going to say. Um, so if you know the answer, send it into shoptalk at taunton.com. Don't post your answer in the blog for this episode. Any answers posted in the blog will be disqualified. We'll select one winner at random from among all the correct answers emailed to us, and that person will receive a set of Rockler bench cookies for their efforts. So are we ready for the clip? Here it is. I feel that uh, there's a spirit in trees that's, that's very deep, and I'm somewhat of a druid that way. I, I, especially when it comes to something extraordinary, I find the spirit just bouncing up and down in, in, the, in the grain of a tree. So uh, <clears throat> there is that relationship. I have essentially no interest in furniture as such. I mean, I, I, I would find it impossible to try to design a chair out of plastic or metal or or a plywood. <clears throat> I'm not in that kind of spirit. But I do feel that uh, in order to produce a fine piece of furniture, the spirit of a tree lives on. And I can give it a second life. So to recap, if you know who that was speaking just now, send in your answer to shoptalk at taunton.com. We'll announce the winner of a set of Rockler Bench Cookies on our next podcast in two weeks. Can I guess? Sure. Gandalf. No. <laughs> was it Gandalf? <laughs> Next episode on October 18th, 2013. Notice how I steamrolled right over Mike's. Was it Jesse Pinkman? No. Anyhow, Jesse Pinkman, you're obsessed with the Breaking Bad finale. You haven't you? seen the finale. Oh, you know that's well, I got. Finale. I actually got the, um, the whole last season on a DVD from somebody who got it somehow in some manner that's probably not legal. Um, so I'll be watching it over the next few uh few weeks. Yeah, so you know the NSA is taping this. I'm sure. I think. <laughs> Listen, the NSA is with me when I'm in the bathroom, so it's, you know. Um, anyhow, next question comes from Adam, and Adam actually had two questions, so this is a twofer. Well, you see how I foreshadowed this question before? Yeah, I did, and I was going to mention something then, and I was like, nah, no, just don't wait on All it. Right. Uh, so, uh, question one. On several of the podcasts, you guys have mentioned both slip-matched and book-matched glue-ups as if they're different things. I know what a book match is, but can you explain the difference or what a slip match is? So let's take them one at a time. Book match. Well, a book match is you cut uh, a board in half. Resaw it. You resaw it. On its edge. On its edge. Well, it doesn't have to be, but yeah, on its edge. And uh, you open it up like a book, and you have the two pages or the two leaves, the two two pieces of wood are mirror images of one another. Okay. Yes. And importantly, importantly, the grain on those two surfaces run in opposite directions. That's very important to keep in mind right. when you start gluing it up and thinking you're going to mill it and all this stuff. Kind of stole my thunder there, Matt, but uh. that's okay. <laughs> um, the benefit and the reason why people really like book matches is you have the perfect symmetry between the two boards. And mm. from sort of a design standpoint, the idea of cutting it, opening up, is going to give us this great symmetrical pattern. This will be really cool. Now, slip match um, is you do the same thing. You're resawing a board. And now, instead of opening it up like a butterfly, you merely slip them 
side by side, maintaining like a the same blackjack dealer does with cards, a exactly. deck of cards. Exactly. That's the example right. I was going to give. Yeah. So you, uh, what you sacrifice in terms of the symmetry, you actually typically pick up in terms of um, a lot of times the grain match visually along the faces of the board is probably going to be a little bit closer. But something that Matt alluded to. If there's any run out on the board, if the grain is running up and down in terms of the way you, you would hand plane or joint it, by book matching right along that glue line or that match, the grain is going in exactly opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever tried to hand plane a panel that's been book matched, it's impossible to avoid tear out for the most part. Yeah, and slip matching, uh, I mean, essentially, it's the, the, with any board, the cases that on opposite, the grain runs in opposite directions on the top and bottom face. Yes. And so, but if you slip match, then the way you lay it out, it's always the top face, for example, facing up and yes. the bottom face facing down. So the grain's always running in the same direction across that panel and you can run it through a planer, you can hand plane it, super easy. Right. Yep. And there's one more thing uh, about that grain running in different directions. Um, there's a phrase that has to do with sort of the luster of the wood. Um, we like to use the term oh, chatoyance. Chatoyance, chatoyance is, is that luster where if you take a Calvin board, Klein. if you look at it from one angle, it can look kind of light. And as you move around to the other side, the light areas look dark and the dark areas look light. Well, what happens is when you book match a board thinking you're going to have a perfect grain match, well, the chatoyance is exactly opposite. So right along that grain line, you know, an area of a bright luster on the right half of the joint is going to look dark immediately to the left. Yeah. And that chatoyance is actually highlighting um, the difference, that glue line, which a lot of times we're, we're really trying to avoid. And it, the, the more figured the wood, the more pronounced that yes. difference in chatoyance. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. But we, we, I think we should... Re, hold we, on. Hold on. What? Is my love for you real? Is your love for me a withering rose? Chatoyance. Pretty good, right? I was writing that while you guys were talking, huh? Really? You just wrote that? That's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really right. well prepared. Take it away now, Matt. I was just to, to recap, because we kind of got off into the weeds there about grain direction and chatoyance. Uh, so book matching is you resaw it and open it up like a book. Slip matching is you resaw it, and it's like as if you're taking a card off and laying it down next to the stack so that the back of the cards are both facing up and you don't see whether it's an ace or four of spades or what have you. And you can just keep resawing and laying them down that way and that's slip matching. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Adam's second question is similarly, is there a difference between a floating tenon and a slip tenon? The terms seem to be used interchangeably. And, no. and what's a loose tenon? Oh, man. Those are all three terms for the same thing. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Done. That was an easy question to yeah. answer. Yeah. Same thing. They're all the same thing. Are you guys at all interested in the... Uh, I, now, I'm, what's the uh, official yeah. fine woodworking terminology? It's slip tenon, isn't it? We usually go with slip tenon. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Um, I'm getting more and more... Speaking of loose tenons or slip tenons or whatever the heck you want to call it, I'm getting increasingly interested in the Domino XL. Yes. I kind of want to play around with one. It just, it, I, it seems like a huge, huge, we've talked about this a lot at work. It seems like a huge game changer, especially for guys who, you know, professional furniture makers who, you know, maybe cabinet makers, cabinet shops, that sort of stuff, who've, they've got to bang stuff out fast and sturdy. 
Well, you know, I, you know, I really cool. One of the numerous machines on my machine list to get, yeah, my list of machines to get was I was I was like I was dead set I was going to get a mortiser, right? A, fl- a floor standing mortiser. And the more I started to look at them, the more I realized that not that there really wasn't one out there that had the features I wanted, you know. Right. Uh, and then I was like, well, you know, I'd be really happy with a uh, slot mortiser or a. Uh, oh, yeah. What are they? Is that what they're horizontal called? Horizontal mortiser. Like an horizontal mortiser. Yeah. Yeah. But they're super expensive. Yeah. Uh, and um, my, I think the prospects of finding an old one is are slim. And uh, so I was just like, man, a Domino is basically a slot mortiser, mm-hmm. but handheld. Yeah. Right. And they, you know, the big one cost about the same as, or pretty yeah. much the same as a floor standing mortiser. Um, it's like twelve, thirteen hundred bucks, right? I think it's twelve hundred. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a uh, a horizontal mortiser when I was at RIT. It was like, and it's funny. It was, it, it took so much of the skill. <laughs> it felt like it took a lot of the skill out of making furniture because it was just like zip, zip, zoom, done. It yeah. was so well, fast. It's fast and God. It, but what I like about I've used the Domino before, and what I like about it is that if you make things with splayed bases, for example, mm-hmm. any type of angled joinery, it's like all of a sudden it's like boom. Yeah. It's it's simple, it's fast, and it's together. Yep. And you can't beat that. You know, I, I I'm not I, I'd rather not have to spend twenty two hours, you know, or whatever making this complicated uh ten, mortise and tendon right. joint, you know. And the joints are, are very, very strong. There's no sacrifice in joint strength at all. Right. So Yeah. It's basically it's a loose tenon. Yeah. You know, yeah. and sure, you could jig up and route it, but uh, this is just much it's easier. It's like using a biscuit joiner, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, we've come to that point in the show where uh, it's time to read some of the comments we get on our page in the iTunes store. Um, you know, every week we like to acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement up there. And uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, recently we received a two-star rating. Normally we receive four- and five-star ratings on iTunes, gentlemen. But we got a two-star rating. But um, still two stars. And no, it was not one star. And yeah. this gentleman's comments were tough. So I was surprised that it was not one star. Uh, but anyhow, Tom A. FNK, I don't know if it might be Fink or Funk, uh, wrote in to say, are you ready? Brace yourselves. Awful. I've tried for months to find something good to say about this podcast. Occasional good guess is about it. The hosts are arrogant full of themselves, have a tin ear when it comes to outsiders, and the humor is juvenile at best. I will not argue with Tom there. I honestly think they started the podcast for their own egos and not for the, quote, good of the craft, end quote, as they like to call it. So, I, you know, and I, I it's okay. It's okay to receive a negative comment, but I, sure. I don't think we're arrogant. I don't think I'm arrogant. I think I'm pretty I'm abusive definitely of myself. You're snarky. <laughs> you are snarky. Mike is like the nicest guy on the planet. That He doesn't enter into this. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. Arrogant Tom? That's rough, man. Um, MDS4752 wrote, Superb podcast. Brand new to the craft, but I'm able to follow along with these crusty veterans without too much difficulty. Entertaining and informative. I know I'll seek to listen to the archives and most likely will listen to some episodes more than once. Highly recommended podcast. And finally, Mike Yerby wrote, Great program. As a beginning woodworker, I'm learning a lot from these guys. I had wondered how much I would actually learn from an audio-only podcast, but I'm pleasantly surprised. Thanks, guys. Keep it up. With that, I think that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on October 18th for our next episode. 
In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Is my love for you real? Is your love for me a withering rose? Shadoy.